0: Well, this weekend, I want to talk a little bit about discontent, and I've entitled my message, When Discontent Brews. You see, when Israel uh, exited out from Egypt from slavery, I mean, they came out, you know, with a massive dramatic display of God's power and might. Amen? I mean, uh, God came down on the nation of Egypt. There were 10 plagues, and a new nation was was birthed with a great sense of hope and vision for what lies ahead for the whole Jewish populace. They were delivered out from slavery. They were set free. And not only that, they were granted a promise of the possession of land, property, vineyard, and a future that up to then was something that they could only dream about. The Almighty came down in the midst of the Jewish people. And he parted the Red Sea. He brought forth water from the wilderness, descended onto Mount Sinai, came by fire, spoke with an audible voice, and entered into a covenant with the people of Israel. By day, He would shield them from the heat of the desert and at night, He would provide warmth for them, gave them food, health, provided them with a system of laws, values, governance, you know, and pointed them towards a personal walk with Himself. You see, this journey that began, promisingly, very soon descended into varying degrees of judgment, disappointment, apostasy, disobedience, and much dismay. And by the time you come to Numbers chapter 16, the scenario is quite different. What began with hope by now, you know, uh, was falling apart, breaking apart, because by the time you come to Numbers chapter 16, the promise of land and of rest had already been foregone by the generation that came out from Egypt because of their disobedience and their unbelief. Tens of thousands of Jewish people have died. The enemies of Israel were all around them, and right at that moment, the worst rebellion that was about to, t- it was about to take place, you know, uh, since they came out from their place of oppression, and this is, of course, what number 16 is all about. You can go back and take a look through it, but the whole chapter just speaks about an insurrection that, w- that happened that was led by a man called Korah, uh, and then a, 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 another two men, Datham and Abiram, and some 250 leaders of the congregation of Israel, and together they rose up against the leadership of Moses and Aaron with the intent of deposing them from their positions. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard people preach from Numbers chapter 16 about this rebellion, and many times it's very easy to observe this account and come towards, come to these simplistic conclusions, right? For example, hey, never raise a rebellion against established leadership, right? Don't touch the Lord's anointed. You know, know your place, stick to your place. Don't, uh, you know, don't sympathize with rebels. And I'm telling you this, if that's all we do, then we're doing the Scriptures a great injustice. You see, the entirety of this rebellion is recorded for us with just enough details to let us know that there is a complicated situation that was developing that led to this rebellion. There was a a complexity to the situation, and we must not settle for simplistic platitudes when God intended for this account to bring forth far more uh, than what we just simply read it. Amen? And and the subject matter is discontent. And I want to show you how discontent brews in this because I think that this has got great application for us. Uh, Here in Cornerstone, we're not anticipating any insurrection soon, okay? Or a rebellion in any way. But nonetheless, there is just a great sense of learning when you see the motivation behind these group of people that raised the rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Now, to understand this, we got to look at the people that were involved here. And there are three principal categories or groups of people that are there. The first person that is mentioned is a person by the name of Korah. And we're introduced to him in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, okay? And it says this, Now, Korah the son of Isa, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Now, of course, Korah is mentioned in uh, several other places, but in this introduction to the rebellion, these were the specific things that were used to describe this man. His genealogy is given to us. You see, lineage and genealogy is a very important component in how we look at people and how we consider people. Now, let me explain this a little bit so that you don't misunderstand me, okay? So here, I'm not talking about how we look at each other's lineage and then we assess each other based on the pedigree of your birth, right? Like, oh, all the tans who are here, not so good, you know? Or the limbs, well, very good, very good. The youngs, oh, very, very good. (laughs) No, no, kidding, okay? Pasang is not here, so... No, no bonus points for saying that. But that's not what I'm saying, okay? That's not how we look at genealogy. You see, biblical concern on genealogy has nothing to do with assigning pedigree. And God chooses from every sector of society, from every race and every tribe. He's not concerned with our genes as much as He's concerned with our character and our propensity towards Him. Amen? But uh, genealogy does leave an impact for, on us, like the roots of a tree, if you have bad fruits in the tree, then the way to deal with the bad fruits is by dealing with the roots. You've got to go back down to the roots. And when you talk about the roots, you're talking about the things that have come from, to us from previous generations. Our bringing, the things that have impacted us through our lives, the generational curses or things that are there inculcated in us that needs to be adjusted and changed. Amen? And therefore, it is really important for us to set in place steps in our spiritual lives to bring us to genuine freedom. Now, I'm a strong believer that every Christian must go through some form of freedom ministry in their lives. Amen? Now, I I don't mean that we are going to go around casting out demons in everybody, okay? So you don't have a demon, yeah? Some of you might, I don't know, okay? But you don't, okay? But freedom is more than just casting out demons, right? I mean, there are things that we grow up with, you know, uh, inadequacies, you know, insecurities that God wants to set us free. That's why we have water baptism, right? And that's why we have things like a freedom ministry here in Cornerstone. That's why it's important for us to go through our journey with God where God leads us to encounter a crucified life. Amen? And these are all important steps that brings us to freedom. Now, when you consider Korah and his lineage, okay, you can discover where the sense of discontent arose from, okay? So I want to show you a little abbreviated version of the lineage, okay? So right at the top is Levi, and of of course, Levi is one of the sons of Jacob. Now, Levi had more sons than just Kohath. He had several sons, okay? But I'm just going to arrow in on Kohath because this is the line that we're interested in. Now, Kohath had four sons, Amram, Isa, Hebron, and Uziel. I hope I'm not slaughtering the names, but uh, you know, if I am, forgive me, okay? But Amron had three kids, okay? You have Aaron, Miriam, and of course, finally, you've got Moses. Now, Korah traces his line to Isa, the second son of Kohath, and finally, there's a thir- uh, third uh, uh, son, Uzil, who had a son by the name of Eli Zafan. okay? Now, why am I talking about Eli Zafan? Because it's crucial. Aaron and Moses, we all know. Aaron became high priest. Moses became the leader of the whole nation of Israel. And what happened is that Elisaphon, the youngest of the youngest, he got the leadership over the whole clan of Kohath, right? So as you examine this uh, genealogy, you will discover that in the delegation of positions, the two foremost positions in Israel went to Aaron and Moses, who were sons of the firstborn, Amran, right? And then the leadership of the whole clan goes to the youngest son's son, Isa, right? And, and uh, uh, sorry, to, to Uzil. Now, when you look at this, you can begin to think hey, this is where Korah's discontent began. Why wasn't the positions and the titles maybe shared a little bit more evenly, right? I mean, there are all these positions. Why is everything concentrated with Am- uh, Am- Amram? And then, you know, and after Amram then comes, you know, Isa, shouldn't Korah might be thinking, shouldn't I be the one then to be the leader of the whole clan? Why did it go to Uziel's son, right? And so what happens is that here is the source of Korah's grievance and discontent that somehow he felt that, uh, you know, he wasn't receiving the honour and the responsibilities that was due to him. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever been in a place where somebody else was promoted and you think to yourself, hey, actually, I'm more more worthy of it? No, none, you guys are all saints. (laughs) I'm sure we've all thought like that before, right? We've all thought the sense that, hey, you know, I think I'm more deserving of this. I think I'm deserving of a bigger bonus. I think I'm deserving of the, the credit for this particular matter. And this is what happens here uh, with uh, Korah. Now, now comes the next two guys, Datham and Abiram, and also in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, we are told about these two men, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and, uh, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. Now, these next two persons that we are going to focus our attention on, these were descended from Reuben. And Reuben is significant because he's the firstborn amongst all the sons of Jacob, right? Yet somehow Reuben is not as famous as the rest of the sons. And the reason is because as you look into the history of Israel, it tells us that the sons of Reuben were systematically passed over whenever it came to leadership roles in the highest office, right? Think about it, Joshua was was from the tribe of Ephraim, right? The kings came from the tribe of Judah. You know, there were various ones who uh, had significance. Even Benjamin had some certain level of significance. But the sons of Reuben, when you look through the history of Israel, somehow seems always to be overlooked. And I believe that there is a sense of frustrated ambition of being overlooked, of being bypassed, that seethed in these men because they took pride in their genealogy. They felt that, hey, we are the sons of the elders of Jacob. And why is it that, you know, we are not given roles to play in this, in the leadership of Israel? They felt slighted when, you know, what they deemed rightfully to be, there, to be theirs was not granted to them. And finally, there is the 250 leaders and the Bible in uh, Numbers 16 verse 2 tells us that these were representatives of the congregation, men of renown. Now, in a different version, this is how they describe these men. They were princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now, have you ever met a prince? I, I've not, okay? I've only seen them on television. But have you ever seen Prince Charles or you've seen Prince, uh, you know, uh, Harry? There, they, there is a dignity with princes, right? They carry themselves well. There's a way they walk. There's a stature to them. In other words, when you're thinking about this 250 leaders. Think this, think of handsome, tall, charismatic men of nature who had abilities, who had giftings, amen. Think about Pastor Diane. (laughs) tall, handsome, charisma. Think about, you know, Deacon Chris. I wanted to say uh, Isaac, you know, but a bit short, uh, you know. So, (laughs) just kidding. I think very handsome. Handsome, handsome, just a bit short, that's all. (laughs) Uh, but, but that's what it is. And these were men of uh, uh, immense capabilities and skills and they stood out because of their abilities. That's why they had, rena- re- they had renown. You see, the, the rabbinical count, commentaries actually tells us that these 250 men, they were firstborns and leaders that hailed from the various tribes of Israel. You see, God's original plan was the firstborn of every family would be His priests. They were the ones that would serve Him right? Because the firstborn belongs to God. But what happened in the sin of the idolatry of the golden calf was that the tribe of Levi stood on the Lord's side and what God did was God took the what was rightfully belonging to the firstborns and gave them to Levi. And so Levi inherits the priesthood, right? That's the chronology and that's the record of the history of Israel. Now the the rabbis believe that these 250 men became unhappy about it because they were replaced by the Levites they lost their place. And having lost it, they resented those who replaced them. And in their minds, you know, you can just imagine the sense of despising the Levites and seeing them as being lesser than themselves and that they were the ones who had the prestige, they had the ones who had the distinctions. You know, and the thing is this, when you consider all these groups of people and the discontent that they manifested, let me tell you this, discontent is unavoidable all of us have experienced discontent. In fact, some of us are facing discontent right now in this moment, right? There's things that we're unhappy about. There are things that we are upset about. And when you consider these groups of men, these three groups of men that led the rebellion against Moses and Aaron, their grievances aren't unique to them. In fact, we can all easily identify with these grievances. Whenever we get neglected or overlooked, we feel like we are passed over for opportunities. We felt like attention is not given to us. Promotion that is due to us is not given. Or we feel slighted. Or maybe our ambitions are frustrated. Or we feel unjustly treated by our leaders and the people that are around us. Let me tell you this. Welcome to life. Life is full of discontent. Amen? Life is full of discontent. I can identify it. I can think that, hey, in fact, I I can see this, that discontent is constantly brewing in our lives. Somewhere along the way, there is going to be discontent and it's going to be brewing all the time. The question though is this, though the cup of discontent is brewing, you don't have to drink from that cup. Though the cup is being offered to you, you don't have to drink it. You see, Korah, Datham, Abiram, 250 of these leaders, as the discontent was stirring, they drank fully of the discontent. And the poison of discontent was devastating. God did something He's never done before and has never since done before. In judging these men, the earth opened up and these people fell right into hell. You see, if you choose to drink the cup of discontent, I'm telling you, it's going to be hell on earth for you. It's going to be torment for you, right? So I want to give us an antidote to this because as you consider how, you know, this, this episode here, it not just tells us what happened, it gives us a sense of an antidote of how we can deal with this thing so that we don't have to drink of this cup of discontent. And the first thing you've got to do is you've got to check your motives, right? In Numbers chapter 16 verse 3, they, we have this charge that was brought against Moses and Aaron and this is what these men said. He said, all the congregation are holy and the Lord is in their midst why then do you exalt yourselves above the lord's assembly now when you consider what they said to moses and aaron there is compelling logic in their argument the first part of our, their argument they say this god called the whole nation to be to be holy you know he's in the midst of all of them and you know what god indeed called the whole nation of israel to be a royal priesthood a holy nation right They were called to be kings. They were called to be priests. God was going to rule in the midst of them. And there is something about discontentment because discontentment always begins with the murmuring of something that sounds totally logical and correct. And maybe you did do the bulk of the work and the credit didn't come to you. And maybe you are due for that promotion and yet somebody had it. I, I, you know, can you imagine that, you know, 20 years you've served in in a backup singers, you know? and you're praying and you're working hard, one day I'm going to be a worship leader. And then this young young person comes in and in three months, you know, she's standing up and she's leading worship. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I worked 20 years. Never asked me and this person just comes up and leads worship. Come on, I've been in church 30 years. They never asked me to lead worship. (laughs) Once they said, Lip, your time has come. You're going to lead worship, you know? I said, oh yeah, I'm ready. We're going for a silent retreat and you'll lead worship there. (laughs) Just wave your hands. A you sound unappreciated. <laughs> but there is always a compelling logic at the beginning of this discontent. But when you consider the second part of that argument, then their mindset, their mentality becomes revealed. Because in that second part, they say this, why then did, do you exalt yourself above the rest? By this argument, you understood something about their mentality. They saw leadership as a position of status and dominion over others. For them, the word is exalt. For them, it was a means to its exaltation. And this is exactly how the world sees leadership. And that's why in secular organizations, there'll be hierarchies, right? There'll be titles, there will be organizational charts and who reports to who, who has this, who has this authority, who has that authority. We start counting the number, uh, the size of our company, we start looking at the bottom line and the turnover because there is a packing order and that's how the world sees leadership. But this is not how God sees leadership. God's sense of leadership is totally different from the way the world sees it. When God chose a leader for Israel, He chose a man called Moses. And the description the Bible gives to us is that Moses was the meekest man on earth. In fact, in verse 4 of this chapter, uh, number 16, right, you see a manifestation of that. Because when they, they brought a charge against him and Aaron, you know what Moses' immediate response was? He fell on his face. And he says, Lord, please forgive us for this. Just imagine, imagine, okay, this week, tomorrow, there's a sitting in parliament You know, and one of the MPs, you know, brings a charge against one of the ministers. You did not handle this well, transport minister. So many MRT breaking down. (laughs) And then the minister goes and says, oh, forgive me, forgive me. Can you imagine that happening in, in, in parliament? That will never happen. And we don't expect our people to do that. In fact, if our ministers do that, we see them as being weak, Right? because this is the system of the world. This is what the world is looking at. They, you know, as far as they're concerned, humility in a person is weakness. And yet this is exactly what Moses did. This is the biblical view, the paramount quality that is needed in leadership. And the reason is because biblical leadership is not about position. It is not about power. It is about being a servant. It is not to gain ascendancy over others, but it's about descending and descending and descending to the lowest place in order to serve people. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 to 28, Jesus had a situation on His hand. His disciples were discontented. They were unhappy, right? Did you know that, you know, Jesus had three special disciples, Peter, James, and John. When He was going to raise the young girl from the dead, He said, the rest stay outside. I bring these three in. When he was going to be transfigured, they said, the rest stay at the bottom of the mountain. I'm going to bring this tree up. And so there's discontent. They were wondering, who is going to be the greatest? Who's going to get the greatest authority when Jesus comes into his calling and his inheritance? They were fighting. They were contesting. And this is what Jesus says to them in answer to this this discontent. And Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you, for whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this is what distinguished Moses and Aaron was that the fact that they descended more than the rest. This is what made them great. This is what made them chosen. These were men who were distinguished by their meekness. Amen. Amen? Amen. And this is what God is looking for in us when it comes to leadership. And so when we are discontent, check our motives. Reference it a bit, again back to what the Bible says, what the value system of the Bible is. Is it so important that we must be at the top? Is it so important that we must be recognized for what we have done? Or is there something else that God is really pointing to us that's more important than just the promotion or being recognized? Now, the second thing in dealing with discontent is that we need to learn to trust the hand of God. Over the last two weeks, I've been reading this book called Man's Search for Meaning. It was written by a Jewish uh, Holocaust survivor by the name of Viktor Frankl. And um, he wrote it in 1946, just shortly after, you know, the end of the Second World War and was liberated from the concentration camp. For three years, he was kept mostly in Auschwitz. And in those three years, you know, um, of captivity, his brother was gassed. His mother died in the gas chambers as well, and his wife died from um, sickness in in a different camp. And in the book, Victor Frankl gave a vivid account of the different aspects of life as a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camp during the Holocaust. He talked about the work they did, he talked about the suffering, but he also talked about the psychology of the prisoners and those who did survive and those who succumbed to death. He talked about finding beauty in the worst places ever. He talked about, you know, coping with humour and all these kind of stuff. And it's, I'm telling you, it's such a painful read because... You cannot imagine, you know, the, the, the things that the evil that is done, men, you know, that mankind does to each other. And you also cannot imagine the pain uh, that men can sustain or people can, uh, you, know, um, you know, endure, you know, through this. Now, there is a portion in his book where he talked about the hand of fate, okay? Of course, as Christians, we don't believe in fate and we believe that God is in control, amen? And he, but he did say this, he talked about letting fate take its course, instead of struggling to plan out his own course of action. Because he learned from the, de- from the first day he entered the concentration camps that he really, you know, didn't know what's the right decision to make. To go left or to go right? Because you didn't know which left or right leads to death and which leads to life. He recounted how they came off the trains in Auschwitz. You know, and there was a, a SS officer who stood at a junction and he had his arms folded and he had one finger lifted up and he would just flip left and flip right. And 80% of the people went left. And they all went straight to the gas chambers and were killed. And the 20% were sent to the labour camps to work, just by the flipping of his fingers. And so you never quite know whether you're going to live or you're going to die. And so he recounted an incident in which he was listed to be transported to another camp. And the Nazis were telling them that they were going to a rest camp. Now, of course, nobody believed it because why would they send them to a rest camp? In fact, they thought that this uh, transport was going to go to the guest chambers. And they were merely trying to lure these people to go willingly onto the transport so they could be sent to their deaths. Now, because he was working in the hospital there, he was given an opportunity to have his name removed from the list. But he thought about it. He says, if my name is removed, somebody else's name is going to be put on it. And then he chose to let fate have its cause. and says, nope, I'm not going to decide. I'm not going to let somebody else die in my place. You know, if it's my time to die, let me die. And everybody believed they were going to die. So he bid a tearful farewell to all his friends, you know, and knowing that he was going off, um, you know, to his own death. That night, he spoke to one of his closest friends, Otto, and he recorded one of the most beautiful things ever written, I think, by a husband to his wife because he knew that he was never going to meet his wife again. And so he said to his friend, Otto, he says, remember, this is my will. And he gave three sentences to this man to memorize so that he would say this to his wife. I want to read this to you, okay? It says, listen, Otto, if I don't get back home to my wife, and if you should see her again, then tell her that I talked of her daily, hourly. I, I, my heart melted, right? All the husbands here, What do you talk about daily? What do you talk about hourly? Do you think about your wife like that? Secondly, he said to the friend, I have loved her more than anyone. Wow. Thirdly, in the short time I've been married to her, you know, uh, in the short time I've been married to her outweighs everything, even all that we've gone through here. And you've got to know, they went through terrible suffering. And he would describe how, you know, in the midst of, you know, of the labour, he would just take little moments to close his eyes. And when he closed his eyes, he would see his wife and he would communicate with his wife, you know? And that was the thing that sustained him. I mean, what love! I want to say this. Husbands, read this book, okay? May it ignite your love towards your wife again, okay? In any case, he bought it the transport. And what is amazing is that the transport indeed brought them to a rest camp. It was not the gas chambers. I mean, of course, it was not like a rest camp that we would think is no holiday either because most of the people were sick, they were weak, um, you know, but they were kept in this camp. And it was weeks later that he found out that those who tried to save their own lives, those who stayed behind, uh, were instead to be ravaged by the worst famine that they'd experienced up to then and soon many of them resorted to cannibalism. They started to eat other dead prisoners And um, by the time the war ended, most of the people who stayed behind did not survive and had died. Now, when I read this account, it so resonated with me. Because so often, so often, I try to work out my own future with my strength. When I see a problem, when I see a circumstance come up, I begin to think about what should I do? How am I going to do this? How am I going to work this out? I start thinking, my mind goes into an overdrive. And you know, when I read this, I just really felt the Lord said, will you not trust my hand? Because mine is not the hand of faith. Mine is the hand of a loving Father who cares for you, who loves you. Who will cover your back. You see, we strive, we cajole, we manipulate, we position ourselves, we tussle for a better seat in order to get a better view, we negotiate for a better deal, we posture to increase our chances, and yet in the end, all we really need to do is to stop and to trust God because He's got something better for us. Romans chapter 9 verse 16 says this, so then it is not to Him who runs, nor to Him who wills, but of of God who shows mercy. And I want to tell you this, for all your striving, if God would just show His mercy, it will be more than anything that you can strive to do. And if you think for a moment that you're where you are because you have strived and you are, it's your gift, it's your ability, I'm telling you, it's because God showed mercy to us. Amen. And in Jeremiah 29 verse 11, the Lord says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You see, God is not thinking about how to torture all of us. He's not thinking about how to make our life a little harder. He's thinking about peace towards us. He's thinking to give us a future and a hope. And I want to encourage you that instead of, you know, instead of striving and instead of letting discontent brew, if we only just trust the hand of God, God, amen, if we only trust that God has got our good and He's going to take care of us. You see, I want to say and say this again, discontent is always brewing, always brewing. Why me? Why am I going through this? Why is that person having a better deal? Why is that person having a better life? Why am I going through this sickness over and over again? Why me, God? Are you not looking? Are you not seeing? And there's all this comparison. There's this competition that's going on and discontent is overflowing all the time. But the point I want to bring to us is this, that though the cup of discontent brews every day, early in the morning, in the afternoon, in the night, There's not once do we need to partake of that cup. Amen. Amen. Instead, the Lord gives us another cup, the cup of His supper, the cup of His blood of forgiveness. On the night that the Lord was betrayed, at the last supper, they all partook of the cup except for one. One of them chose the cup of discontent and said, I'm done. And he betrayed Jesus. Eleven of them drank the cup of communion to receive the grace of God. And I want to encourage us today because I know this. I know that discontent is brewing. I know that there is discontent in all our lives, one form or the other. Amen. But I want to encourage you. You don't need to let discontent rule over you. Let's all stand to our feet, shall we? I want to bring this to a close. I want to pray for us. Amen. You know, personally, I am full of complaints, honestly. You know, if you could if you if all my thoughts were verbalized okay you would see a man who has tons and tons of complaints you know and and i want to say this that i suspect that it's not just me i suspect that many of us are the same way because life's not fair right circumstances happen and trouble seems to come over and over again And sometimes we just get tired. Sometimes we say, hey, this is enough. And we just think that, hey, this is, there's no equity in all this. But I want to say this. Yeah, it is indeed unfair. There is no equity. And the the inequity is that Jesus came and He drank the cup of sin and suffering for every one of us. He took the worst deal possible and He gave us salvation. He gave us the best deal possible. And when you truly look in comparison of what we have received, all these little things that happen around us really isn't that bad, amen? God wants to change our perspective. And not only that, on the night, the very night He was betrayed, He offered us a different cup. Not a cup of discontent, but a cup of forgiveness and grace, amen? And I want to ask us to bow our heads, close our eyes. And some of us, we've gone through such betrayal in our lives. Some of us, we've gone through such pain some of us, we're just struggling with things and situations and circumstances in our workplaces, in our homes, in our families. And sometimes, you know, some of us might even be going through some unfair and unjust situation that is confronting you, that's pressing you and whatever. And, and you are at a precipice and you're thinking to myself, man, I'm just going to give him, I'm going to fight back, I'm going to get even with the people around me. But this morning, I just really feel this, that the Lord wants us to reject that cup of discontent and instead to drink the cup of His grace that He's given to us. Amen. Father, we just come to You, Lord. We thank You for the goodness of God, Lord, that is showered upon our lives, Lord. Father, our running is not enough, Lord. Our wills are not strong enough, O God. But we thank You that Your mercy has come to every one of us, Lord. And we have received what we are undeserving of in a quantity that we cannot believe, O oh Lord. And You have poured out Your grace upon us and our paths, Lord, have literally dripped with Your goodness and Your abundance, O oh God. Father, your, oh, your mercy overwhelms us, O oh God, and we realise, O oh God, that Your thought towards us is for peace and not for evil, Lord. For a hope and for a future, O oh God. And this morning, we put our trust in You, Lord. We put our trust not in our circumstances, not in our own strength, O oh God, not in men and their decisions, O oh God, but we put our eyes towards You and we trust You, O oh God, that You will always give us more than a fair deal. You'll give us an unfair deal, O oh God, a deal that is way too good than what we deserve, O oh God, much better than anything that we deserve, Lord. And Lord, we acknowledge that, Lord. Father, I pray for all of us, my brothers, my sisters, myself, O oh God, that, Lord, that we'll never, never willingly drink of of that cup of discontent, Lord. You've not just shown us, Lord, the problem, but you've given us an antidote for it, oh God. And help us see it. Help us to see, oh God, that you are for us, oh God. Help us to see that we can trust you, oh God, beyond the circumstances around us, Lord. And this morning, Lord, we put our trust in you, Lord. We love you. We give you praise. We give you glory, Lord. We surrender everything that we're going through in our lives, God. We ask you right now to pour out your grace to us. My Uh, Church, I want to just ask you, if you're going through something in your hearts this morning, if there is discontent brewing in you, wherever you are, then you would reach out your hands to the Lord right now and you would ask Him, Lord, help me see. Help me see differently, Lord. I don't want to be discontented anymore. Help me understand my motives. Help me trust your hand, that your hand will always give me the best deal. And I want to encourage you to open your hearts to the Lord. Amen. Your circumstances might not change immediately, but I want to tell you this, you'll look at the situation completely differently. Amen. No longer slaves, but given a promise of inheritance. No, No longer condemned to death and in eternity without God, but having received the salvation of Jesus Christ, peace with God, reconciled, in our relationship with God. Those are the things that God has given to us. Amen. And again, Father, we just thank You. I pray for every hand that is lifted towards You, every heart that is yearning for You, that's calling to You. Lord, I just pray right now, O God, that You would administer Your cup of grace, Lord, to every person that is here, O God. You just administer that cup of forgiveness, O God, over every single one of us, Lord. We choose this morning to reject the cup of discontent and the drink of the cup that you have given to us, the cup of grace, Lord. We give you praise, we give you glory, honour. And now, Lord, I speak your blessings over my brothers and my sisters, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you, now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap often, shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church.